0: About the um, the Heroku Postgres thing you mentioned, um, I guess they're upgrading their Postgres offering for databases, and it has some new functionality.
1: So what is it? It's like the rollback and snapshots and stuff, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's basically stuff for for admins, for database admins, to to kind of help manage the data better. It's not really. I don't think there's anything really front-facing um, that any real User of your application would notice, but it's it's all kind of back end database stuff to help you do stuff better and things like rollbacks and all that.
1: That's quite a bit of control though for a for a database as a service. Um, the control to do snapshots and to rollback. I mean, a lot of these databases as a service offerings don't don't really give you that. They just they give you a database and you can run SQL statements and stuff, but that's it. So right. that's, that's actually pretty nice. Um, a related thing I saw today actually was that or maybe it was yesterday, that Amazon, so Amazon has RDS, which is their relational database service. So Traditionally, they've had MySQL and Oracle, and I think Microsoft SQL too, mm-hmm. but they just added um, Postgres. So it looks like Postgres is, you know, and they've had a, a slow but steady trajectory over the past, like I don't know, what, seven or eight years? Um, they're, I, have they eclipsed MySQL yet? I don't know. I
0: I think I remember a long time ago when I was looking at alternative databases, I, I ended up choosing
1: MySQL over Postgres, but I'm, I'm not sure if there was any kind of real reason why. Well, it so traditionally or historically, um, MySQL was just available. And I, by the way, I don't know, is it MySQL or MySQL? I, I think I go back and forth. I think I always say MySQL, but... I think that's that's easier to say, but I think it was, at least for the longest time, the, the official pronunciation was MySQL, which is just too hard to say, but... <clears throat> Um, yeah, so historically, the, the thing about MySQL was that it was just available on so many cheap web hosts, you know, so all of these PHP, MySQL websites, you know, that's just what you had. And it worked pretty well. And it was really fast. It's really fast, too. I mean, especially if you're using the the MyISAM uh, engine, mm-hmm. which hopefully you're just using it for read only, but if you are, it's it's super fast, so. But didn't you, didn't
0: you also say that Salesforce was considering moving some stuff over to Postgres?
1: Well, yeah, and, and I don't know what the update that is to that, but, you know, like six months ago, they made, big, they made a big deal about it, and they announced they were hiring 500 Postgres developers. So, not sure if that got escanned or what. <laughs> you, you don't think it was,
0: I mean, obviously Heroku is, is Salesforce, so it, you think it was in relation to that, or, or you're, it was in relation to
1: Salesforce.com, the platform? I don't think it had much to do with Salesforce. I think it has more to do with the fact that Salesforce hates that they are married to Oracle.
0: Yeah. Well, did I, and this goes back to a long time ago, but I, I seem to remember at some point, he kind of stopped talking about Oracle as the back end. And kind of said that they kind of rolled their own kind of database on top of it, which is kind of what they did. But I think at some point they stopped talking about Oracle, didn't they?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when Salesforce was smaller and getting their start, it was one of those things where, you know, at the bottom of their web page and at the, all their pamphlets, they had like the, the logos of all the big companies that were their vendors. So you'd see like, um, BEA and like Oracle and all, you know, but they long since have, you know, done away with that. Right. right? Cause they don't really need that credibility anymore, but they still, I mean, I think they're very, very, mir- in fact, uh, Saw a pretty interesting article. I think we might have talked about it last week. About, um, and uh, there's some Salesforce engineers at some conference, like a DevOps conference, just talking about all the ridiculously awesome DevOps type stuff they have with Oracle and like the up to Oh, it was, yeah, it was how they manage like hard disks and just they know that you know they're going to have a thousand hard disks go about a year. All right, but I remember you just, telling me that. They, yeah, they've got this. But the, so they plan for that, obviously, and just their redundancy, and it's you know it's just it sounds like Oracle is just all baked up into that though, so that'll be hard to replace that. I don't know if, again if that effort is ongoing or if they decided that that was just too much work.
0: Yeah, I'm not really an IT guy, so I'm always interested to kind of hear what these guys kind of do to have to maintain these these big clouds. I mean, I always assume that they've got these really nice, great systems and everything, and they're they're always running and they rarely break down. But I I think the Reality is they're probably always breaking down and relying on that redundancy, right?
1: Yeah. Well, you have to assume that hard disks fail, and they're going to fail because they do. Right. So if you but build that, that into your plan, I, and you don't have a you know that as a single point of failure, then you know you're fine.
0: Yeah. Well, it,
1: Amazon has had a pretty
0: big week. I think um, they had a ton of announcements, and it I think it's a nice segue into that because. I think Amazon is offering a new... Aren't they offering some kind of new fast data storage? I want to say it might be SSD or flash-based for, for kind of applications that really need that fast storage. Did you hear anything about that?
1: I haven't heard anything new.
0: That was one of the things that was kind of on my radar, and I I, I meant to read up on it, but I didn't. I was hoping you heard of it.
1: Yeah, I yeah, I yeah I, I vaguely know that they do have an SSD storage offering for... Uh, applications that require just that level of IO, but mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. They had their AWS reInvent conference this week. i had some, some things on my list to talk about, but I don't know if we'll get to that, but um, they did announce some, uh, they, well, in addition to, you know, Postgres on AWS or on RDS, they, um, they ha- announced, I, guess, I think some new instance types and some new pricing. So apparently the pricing has gotten quite a bit better on s- some of the types well, there
0: was two things that I was excited that I saw come across, and that was the the workspaces and the app streaming. I thought those were two really interesting things. So explain the workspaces. So the workspaces is kind of basically virtual servers on their cloud that lets you basically run. It's, I guess it's the virtual terminal service, basically, but um, you log in you log in to the Amazon cloud and you basically stream your OS, just like kind of a remote desktop from them.
1: And so it's just always running and you can connect to it from any machine, anywhere, any
0: machine, any device. So which, which makes from the it side much easier to manage because you're just managing that, that Amazon cloud with all your instances of, of everyone's computers and you have greater control over what they're actually doing on that computer and everything else. And everyone else with their actual computers are just kind of logging in and streaming
1: that um, over the wire. So the, this is the thing that's interesting to me about this is, is just that this is an, an established marketplace for this type of service. So you've got, um, I know Citrix has, you know, an offering here. And I believe Dell does as well through an acquisition they made a few years ago. Um, that's probably other players as well. But uh, the interesting thing about Amazon getting in this is that they will commoditize it and just drive the price down. Yeah, and just disrupt the hell out of that business. So that'll be interesting. I think it's interesting. I don't really. I mean, do you have any use for something like that? I think it's. Is that is that more for corporate? Uh, Because that's. I think traditionally that's who uses that. It's like corporate situations.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, It's it's more corporate stuff, and rather than having setting up a VPN and having your own servers and managing all that security, you basically just. Well, not only that, all the updates and everything to the operating system, updates to software, all of that's managed, you know, centrally within that, and. You know, there's no walking around to someone's computer and get it. There's no any of that. And if someone needs to switch out a computer, loses one, breaks one, you just get them a new one and they log in and they have everything that they had before.
1: And I would assume the storage for it is on, you know, redundant storage. So, you know, you don't have to worry about people's hard drives going bad anymore.
0: Yeah. And then they also kind of called the attention to some active directory integration and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, all of that is kind of
1: seamless as well. Um, of, of uh, course, know, they, Amazon, they also have, they also have this VPC. So you can, you can actually create a, like a virtual private or like a I guess I guess they call it a private cloud within right. Amazon. And then you can create a persistent VPN connection between that cloud and your corporate network so that people it's, it's almost like they're, so I'm thinking if they combine that with this desktop, um, uh, transparent or what's the word, what do they call that? It's the remote desktop or whatever. If they combine those, then even though you're logging into your desktop that's actually running in Amazon, it's like it's on your local network as well. Right. And
0: that, that, so yeah, that that's why the the second thing is extremely interesting to me that I saw, which is app streaming. It's not unprecedented. There are other companies doing that. I'll, I'll kind of um, did you hear about it? Do I need to explain a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I don't know what it is. Yeah, so explain it.
0: Yeah, so basically, if you you can develop an application, host it on Amazon, and rather than someone downloading your application and running it locally, they're running it on the Amazon cloud, and all they're getting is a as a stream of that application running. So it's almost like a, a entire OS VM, except it's specific to your application. Hmm. And and one of the That's big things they're touting is kind of HD quality streaming and everything. So it's it's got to be it's going to be you know high res. Images of your application so your users should be able to use it and not be able to tell that, that they're not on on their local machine that, that they're actually
1: using it on the cloud. It kind of reminds me of the promise of like teleconferencing and Skype and all these types of things. like it sounds good, but it really depends on it. I'm sure Amazon's network is great, but the, the weak link in the chain there is that that where the user is and what their connection is.
0: Yeah, and they they kind of addressed that a little bit in in the release that that they have some some technology built around um what your bandwidth is like at the time and I'm not entirely positive how this works, but it almost seemed like if you really had a really bad connection, you would just stop using the application until it could actually start rendering correctly.
1: Yeah, but I mean that that just sucks if, if that happens. I mean, again, you know people who work say from home and they have a less than stellar internet connection. I mean, they're just not going to be able to use that.
0: Well, the, the the target market for this isn't for everyday Excel-like applications. This is for graphic-intense applications or applications that do a lot of calculation and analytics. So it's meant to kind of offload what would be huge storage and processing power that you would have to use on not so much a computer but a mobile device, something that doesn't have as much power and resources. And to be able to do the things that you would do With a server or desktop or anything, but render it on this on Amazon and then just stream the content to your, to your device. So things like iPads or maybe an Air, a MacBook Air, maybe that doesn't have as much power as you would like, or, you know, your mobile phone, they would be able to use these very resource intensive applications just by streaming video
1: have to look into that a little bit more. I'm, I'm not, I still don't fully understand what the difference between that and the, the full desktop services, but sounds interesting.
0: Well, I mean, I think it's more of how you want to deliver your application. So say you have an application that requires a hundred gigs of storage and <laughs> I'm being extreme here, but it requires a lot of storage and, and a lot of processing power and a lot of memory. And You want to be able to deliver that content to someone's mobile device, either their iPad or their iPhone, but knowing the limitations of all those different devices, different versions, people still on on maybe an iPhone 3 or some earlier smartphone who might not be able to run that, you can kind of avoid having to write your code to the lowest common denominator and write it for the best of breed software and hardware and just stream the actual content to those devices.
1: Hmm. Sounds cool.
0: I'm ex- I'm excited about it. I wish I had something that would be able to use it, but I don't. But I can see I can definitely see the value of it. Um, probably gaming would be one of them. Maybe some indie developer that wants to set up a game and wants to make that available to as many people as possible. That's one way to do it. And like I said, the technology is not unprecedented. There's a company called OnLive that basically did the same thing with with gaming you they host and run the video game on their servers so you can get really good renderings and everything as if you had the top of the line newest you know gaming pc and you would basically just kind of stream the video and any inputs and anything you had would get streamed up and there's some concern over lag and all that kind of stuff especially with gaming but that's basically the the concept was they would stream the video to you and stream your inputs back to the server and it would do all the rendering
1: yeah, I think it's the latency that that kills that for games. I mean, even even 50 seconds of latency is probably too much. I played it. It wasn't too bad. Um, did I say 50 seconds? I meant 50 milliseconds. <laughs>
0: I, I actually did get an account, and I played it for a while. It did kind of go through a restructuring that kind of... After the restructuring, I haven't really seen much from it or, or play it. Um, but from what I did see, it was pretty interesting, because not only could could they stream the video to you, the player? They could also kind of stream the video to other people who wanted to just be spectators. So you could go in and see a game that was being played by by a real person. And if you're the type that likes to watch people play video games or if you want to kind of see a game and see if it looks fun enough that you want to buy it, um, I liked it for that. But of course, they had a really limited scope of games that that you could play on that. So um, aside from the really... Top of the line popular
1: games, not much else was on it. So we talked about the private the new private app exchange that Salesforce released like a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah, did I you look know. into that some more? Well, a little bit. I still don't quite get it. Um but I did see that they announced pricing. I didn't know they were gonna charge for it, but apparently it's not free. It's five bucks per user per month. Oh uh, that that kinda of blows. So that, you know, if you say you have a hundred users, that's, you know, you're looking at six grand a year, uh, which
0: that, that's if it's with Salesforce, that's kind of, that kind of sucks. I mean, I understand it's, it's a platform it's a subscription, it's a service offering, but man, if you don't feel like you get nickel and dime here and there, every time you want to do something.
1: Um, well, I mean, it's, they, if it's valuable, I mean, if it's stuff they're having to work I know, on I mean, I know, you know, you gotta can't, can't give everything for it, away but, for free, but. But I just, the, my problem is I still don't, I even watched a video about it. I still don't fully get it. It's like, it's not just exchange stuff. It's like mobile apps and supposedly desktop apps. I just don't see how you can provision those kind of apps through Salesforce. I, I don't know. I mean, if you can do that, that's that's actually pretty cool. It, and maybe it's a much bigger thing than what I am realizing that it is. Well, some of them are just kind of launchers, aren't they? To
0: other web based applications with single sign-on built in so that you basically launch it from Salesforce, the Salesforce identity takes over, and you're automatically in that application. And then for those that have are native, um, you're able to install those and, and have access to those just like you would anything else. Let's, let's talk about Microsoft. And I didn't know what stank... Stank? <laughs> I didn't know what stack... That's a, that's a different system. <laughs> I didn't know what stack... I didn't really know what stack ranking was, um, so I had to kind of read up on that article and, and, of course, click through the links to kind of understand it a bit more. And it, it, I guess I understand it for large enterprise corporations with thousands of employees, but it sounds like a crappy model. I mean, basically, you have to rate people in these specific categories of, of basically highly valuable to mid-level to they they suck. And if you have no one on your team that sucks, you still have to rank them in there because that's the way that it works. And it
1: Yeah, you have yet to fit to the curve. I think though that most large companies, at least in the United States, this is I mean, this is how most of them work. I don't I mean, I think it's a charade. I, I think performance reviews are the big charade, the thing where you, you write up your own performance review and rate yourself and then your boss reviews it and makes changes and you know, he's gotta tell you why he he, he can't give you the rating that you deserve because he knows that he doesn't have it in his budget and all, you know, it's, it's such a, it's such a charade, but, and I think it's really counterproductive to morale and it's just, it's just weird and creepy. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the companies I mean, how do you solve that problem of, you know, you've, you know, you've got so much budget for salaries and bonuses and raises. I mean, you have to somehow distribute that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. But I, I, I think the, the bonuses is one thing and that that certainly plays into it. But then just the impact of being rated in that low percentage or even in the mid, um, knowing that, that, that everything's kind of graded on a curve, just kind of, I'm not sure how that helps build people up. I'm not sure how that takes someone from being in that low percentage and moves them up. Because I believe if you're in that low percentage, you're high risk of basically getting fired or let go. And I think the idea is to keep, low performers out and high performers in which, which again makes sense on paper. It makes sense with the numbers,
1: but from a people perspective, it just really sucks. So here's a quote from somewhere. Um, A lot of Microsoft superstars did everything they could do to avoid working alongside other top-notch developers out of fear that they would be hurt in the rankings and the reviews had real world consequences. Those at the top received bonuses and promotions. Those at the bottom usually received no cash or were shown the door. So that's, that's the unintended consequence of this style of management is that uh, people try to game it. You know, g- smart guys don't want to work with other smart guys because then they don't, you know, you want to work, you want to work on a mediocre team so that you look good. Yeah. It's kind of and like you're the, at the top of that curve, the manager that won't hire anyone who knows more than he does. Yeah. That's you know similar thing. I think. Well, I mean, again, uh, maybe this is, I don't know how big of a problem this was at Microsoft. They also, strangely, have really high employee retention compared to similar firms. So they're doing something right, but at least in terms of retaining employees. But, you know, if people are really gaming it like that, that's not productive for the organization as a whole. So, you know, hopefully this will, they still have a name to CEO, right? So they're kind of just hanging in the lurch right now.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the interesting about this is it, it the, the memo that went out pointed towards their one Microsoft initiative, which was something that Steve Ballmer announced earlier in the year as kind of a restructuring of the whole company in terms of how they do business and how different departments and, and all that interact. Everything from just the internal stuff to the how each product division currently runs in, in their own silo and how they want to bring that back in um, and centralize it. Well, maybe not centralize it, but get the teams to kind of cooperate a little bit more, and and um, provide kind of this this more team service oriented off- offering. But I'm not I'm not sure I'm not sure how that plays out with with the acceleration of of Steve Ballmer leaving because I think that was early in the year. Before it had to be before he was announced that he was leaving, right? I don't know. And so I guess you got if you believe that that Ballmer was great at managing the company but not maybe providing a good vision for the future in terms of their product line, then, then maybe this whole initiative will survive his leaving. But if you believe that he just was not managing the company well or anything like that, which I don't think there there's evidence of, then this will probably kind of disappear as well.
1: Yeah. So here's, here's a better way of saying what I was trying to say a minute ago. Uh, this is a Steven Sanofsky So no matter how you look at it, one person cannot be evaluated and paid in isolation of budgets. The company as a whole has a budget for how much to pay, salary, bonus, stock, etc. No matter what an individual's compensation is part of a system that ultimately has a budget, the vast majority of mechanical or quantitative effort in the system is not about one person's performance, but about determining how to pay everyone within the budget. While it is desirable to distinguish between professional development and compensation, that will almost certainly get lost once a person sees their compensation or once a manager has to assign a rating any suggestion as to how to be more fair allow for more flexibility provide more absolute ratings or otherwise separate separate performance from compensation must still come up with a way to stick to a budget the presence of a budget drives the existence of a system there will always be a budget and don't be fooled by found money as that's just a budget trick this you know that's that's one reason why i think that's just a downside to working at large companies and just the you know, the bureaucracy and just the notion of the firm.
0: Yeah, I think I understand the point that's being made there with in terms of the budget. And there there are a lot of unintended consequences of it, especially when you've done everything you can to get yourself in that top percentage and the company decides they didn't make enough profit to, to hand out those budgets. And so you end up losing out on that. So the fact that it's so, and maybe that doesn't affect Microsoft, maybe they're still doing well enough that, that that doesn't impact them I'm not sure if if I've heard that they have not been able to hand out a bonus because of a loss or anything like that so so in in that term this system might still work for them but I think I think anytime you have a system where where your performance triggers what your bonus pay what your merit raise is going to be and the company can't deliver on that then then it definitely impacts morale in in a big way
1: yeah it's interesting though that um I guess Facebook, Google, and Amazon have similar systems. Particularly, Amazon has a fairly um, sterile, cutthroat, you know, curve-fitting type of thing.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, but I think it just kind of speaks to the challenge of of, of what you kind of mentioned earlier, which was the managing the budget versus you know trying trying to reward your
1: employees that are
0: that are really producing.
1: Yeah, and I, I've seen Facebook kind of has a spin on it where they say they they use it just to try to recognize their top performers, but it's it's they really hit the same. I mean, it's the same problem. They could try to spin it, but it's
0: well. So did did you see the uh, some latest news? I I think it was TechCrunch that I read it on, um, but I think they were feeding off of a Wall Street Journal article that kind of talked about. Um, Steve Ballmer's exit and how it wasn't that he was fired over the whole surface thing, which was some of the speculation, but that it was accelerated by the board, but that Ballmer had pretty much decided that it was time for him to go either way. Um, That it was kind of his, that he kind of triggered it. Do you, do you believe that?
1: Well, I don't know. I read a Wall Street Journal article that um, quoted him. I think it was an exclusive actually. It was, but um, he, Ballmer said that he had written his uh, resignation letter like 40 times, just different versions of it. And he'd been working on it for a while and this was something he'd been planning. So I don't know. I don't think, I mean...
0: That seems kind of odd to me. So if, if you've written your resignation 40 times because you believe maybe you're not the right person at this point in time to keep it going or maybe you have other aspirations and you ended up staying on, is that a good move? Was that a good move for Microsoft? Well,
1: he's not staying on. Well, you said he
0: wrote it 40 times. Does that mean 40 times in the past or 40 times recently?
1: No, recently, I think. I mean, relatively recently. He's, so he's been, you know, he had decided that he wasn't the guy to take Microsoft, Microsoft into, the, into the future. And so, um, yeah, he just, that was his decision. And I don't think he got any pushback from the board, though, was the interesting point. They were like, well, okay.
0: Well, no, they they accelerated it. I mean, I think I think the presence of the word "accelerate" in, in in the conversation with someone leaving kind of says that maybe he got the feeling that they're ready to push him out, and he'd rather be the one to do it than than have them fire him.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this this whole story to me is kind of boring. I mean,
0: well, I, I, I don't I don't think it's boring. I've never I mean, been
1: impressed with i never been impressed with Balmer, and I don't really care if it was you know if he decided he wanted to quit or if he's being forced out. I mean I guess for me the bottom line is <clears throat> hopefully they'll find a good CEO and they'll change whatever issues they have internally that's prevented them from being able to compete in, you know, the devices and tablets and wearables and all this type of stuff. Um because we need good competition. Um I don't I don't know that'll be you know, I'm gonna jump to use a Microsoft product anytime soon, but you know it's it helps I mean everyone benefits from from good competition. So I hope they figure out something, but <sighs> All the politics and the stuff about Bomber. That's just kind of boring. Do you do you find it interesting? I don't find the, the politics
0: itself interesting. I think what I find interesting is the prospect of a new Microsoft, or the prospect of a Microsoft that's evolving and becomes much more interesting and exciting to to follow and to watch and Right now they, they lack a lot of polish. I mean, in, in every release and everything that they do, they have good products, but their releases are are almost amateurish in, in a way, or they focus on the wrong things when they're, when they're kind of releasing something or, or even this, their, their sales model or their pricing model just really sucks for people who are just trying to get in and, and actually do some stuff. They're so focused on these top level enterprise customers. And I think the world is changing to more independence. Um, even in gaming um, it used to be these big shops kind of ruling the, the gaming market, but now so many indie developers um, on the gaming with, with these new stores and everything are, are, gaining traction. They're able to kind of go out there and do things with a smaller group and produce really nice things. And I think that's the future that I want to see. I want to see the future where, and it's a future that, that Apple has has fostered with the App Store. I mean, you have so many indie developers on the App Store doing really nice things, building really great apps and building really great companies from that. And I don't see that for Microsoft. I see this this huge, very expensive model to get into their market, a lot of restrictions, a lot of a lot of access issues to certain things like you can't you can't really build for the app store unless you're going to be solely windows 8 and windows 8 hasn't really gained that much traction as windows 7 so there's a lot of trade-offs to kind of living in that world and i'd like to see
1: that improve back to you Mm. yeah i don't not sure they have anything else to say about that I, i just don't even i don't follow it that closely really so i don't have much of an opinion other than how can you not they have an opinion on on, th-
0: on what what could make Microsoft exciting again for you? That's I mean, the only that, opinion that, you have to, that, have
1: to have. I'm I'm just totally bored with Microsoft failing to perform and just performing in a very mediocre way. It's just such an old story. It's been like, it's like a ten year old story. I mean, I hope they get better. I hope they can start acting like a small comp a small hungry company. And I think they should split up into completely separate divisions and you know drop this whole everything's got to promote Windows. They need to figure out. They need to really get off that that Windows cash cow because it's it's really slowed them down in other areas.
0: Yeah, I guess I can agree with that. <clears throat> but
1: now you have an opinion. <laughs> I mean, that's it. It's just simple, and it's but I don't know. It is what it is. I don't follow them closely because again, they don't really produce anything that I'm interested in at this point. So, other than just competition, I mean, if they came out if they had a great phone OS or if a desktop OS, I mean, just keep. You know, keep Apple on its toes, keep Android on its toes. I mean, that's, that's beneficial. I mean, Microsoft's big and they still make a lot of money. They're still, I think, an important place for them, but man, they need to perform.
0: All right. Well, since that's boring, you, I'm going to switch conversations on you then. All right. Do you know what a coin is? Are you talking about this credit card thing? (laughs) Yes. I think it's, I think it's interesting. I, the more I think about it, I think there's a lot of issues there. Um, that may or may not allow it to survive, but it's an interesting
1: concept, isn't it? I can't decide whether it's. Oh, so let's describe what it is. So it's this. It's a. It's about the size of a credit card. It, it is. It is exactly the size of a credit card. All right. Okay. So it's the size of a credit card, and it can basically act as any of your credit cards, ATM cards, things like that. It can, I think it can hold up to eight. And right. What you do is you program it. With all, with all those cards. And then the only thing you have to take with you is this, is this one card, this coin, what's it called? Coin something. It's just called coin. coin. Yeah. Oh. Okay. So you just have to take this one card. And when you're, when you're out and you want to say, use your visa debit card, you put it in visa debit card mode. You just click the button and then you hand the card to the person or swipe it or whatever. And it's, it's all good. And then later, if you're out, you know, somewhere else and you want to use your, you know, Mastercard or something, you just switch or your ATM, you just switch, switch into that mode. And you've got this one card that can act as all like cards and you only have to take one with you. Um, I can't decide whether this is like the best idea ever or the worst idea
0: ever. <laughs> I I feel the same way about it. And I'll let you know, cause I ordered one out of pure morbid curiosity and wanting to try this technology <laughs> out. Cause I think it's really cool
1: and it's 50 bucks right now. I ordered one. I saw that. I saw that it was 50 bucks limited time. And I've, I'm I'm thinking of ordering one yeah. too.
0: Now I do have some, some concerns about it though. One is usually when you go to a place like Best Buy or something, they want to see the card, they want to see a signature on it, they're kind of flipping it back and forth, so you're still going to have to carry your ID. Um, Two, the button, even though they they kind of list and say that it tries its best to kind of prevent accidental switching, when you press that button, that doesn't mean someone couldn't just go in and tap it and switch to a different card and, and scan it. They could scan all eight of your
1: cards. What, could. you know, if they have a strip reader, cause it, that's, it's still a magnetic strip. It's just, it's a dynamic magnetic strip. Right. So as long as they have a normal reader, they could scan all your things. Yeah. And so you said something a minute ago, um, it, does this, is, does this not violate like the terms of service for a visa and all these different things? Is Are, are you allowed to make copies of your own card? I'm not sure. And I, I, I had that thought
0: as well of whether or not visa or MasterCard or Amex or anybody else would come back to them and say, Hey, you can't do this. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, it might be just one of those really interesting things that ends up going away because I guess, because no one's aware of it, whoever's using it. And, and when I end up using it, I'll have to do some education on it. Every time I will have to tell people, this is my card. This is the new technology. You just scan it like you would anything else. Try not to press this button. Cause it's going to switch cards on you.
1: Well, I was thinking it'd be cool if if you either had to enter a code or maybe it like it looked at your fingerprint or something before it let you change modes. Well that would be cool, but that would kind of make it
0: that would kinda it would have to be bigger than it is to be able to swipe. So you'd end up probably with like this thick side and this really thin side for scanning.
1: Yeah. I mean and that's that's the constraint there when you're if you're trying to make something credit card sized. You know, they have they have V C funding, so I mean, presumably they have done some, at least some level of legal homework to know that this is, legally speaking, is, is feasible.
0: Yeah. Now, I definitely see, you know, I am i don't see I'm going to have any problems if I'm walking up to, like, the gas machine or, you know, doing self-checkout or anything like that. I think the only time I really think I might have issues is, like I said, someplace like Best Buy, where they, they like to see your card, they like to hold it, they like to, their system asks them for some number on the back of the card, and they flip it over, and they enter that. Or restaurant did you say gas machine?
1: I did say gas machine. Is that what you call it?
0: No, I just that's just what came out.
1: Okay. <laughs> I call it a gas pump. <laughs> I do too, but
0: I said it, and I was like gas machine in my head. <laughs> I think I, I crossed gas machine and ATM together or something. I don't know. Whatever my brain did, we ended up with gas machine. But those are the places I think I, I, I see having an issue. Maybe not restaurants, because I can at least talk to the waitress and say, hey, I'm trying this cool new thing. And um that probably won't be an issue. But I think the the other places that are kind of a little more stringent on security that that in terms of card and who using it and wanting to see that signature, or at least getting an ID, that, that might be an issue. Because there's no name on the card either. Your name's not on it. At least not that I know of. Um maybe they print it on there or something, but from all the videos and everything I saw, there was no
1: name. Yeah, we'll see. It, it's an interesting idea. Hey, so we're like forty minutes in, 30 minutes in, something like that. Have we mentioned Salesforce yet? Uh, with Hiroki That's about it. No, oh, that's right, but we've got well, a, anyway, we got we
0: got So I, I don't see how we did that because we've got a big dreamforce conference coming
1: up next week. Well, that and uh, to me, the elephant in the room right now is this um, outage that happened last night.
0: Oh, no kidding.
1: That was pretty big. Yeah, well so they, so they had two outages the,
0: they had the outage and then they had the issue with the chrome browser updating well that was not that's not their fault that's chrome's fault true but it was an issue they had to deal with yeah enough uh, that they had to kind of post that message and have people I, I actually didn't experience that issue so I'm not sure how much of an impact it was to to people or, or what it was actually doing that was that was a mistake I'm assuming it was some rendering issue but I don't know shouldn't have affected any kind of saving of a record or anything like
1: that yeah i don't know like what let me look at my chrome what am i on probably 32 now i guess i'm on 30 nearly up to date so i'm behind i guess i need to close mine so (laughs) i think they're up to 32 now because i think 31 was the bad one and Mm. 32 is the fix i'm still on 30 so i need to you know what you will end up having to do is reinstall the whole thing
0: if i get behind behind on on my chrome updates i can for some reason at some point it doesn't let me auto update i have to basically reinstall it yeah, I've never had that
1: problem. I do all the time. Something's wrong with your computer. It's Chrome, Skype. <laughs> My computer's awesome. So anyway, this the Salesforce outage, I guess they had a migration that went bad. It was a it was like a planned maintenance that I think it was one of those ones that there was not supposed to be any downtime or if there was it was you know one of like 5 or 10 minutes. But it did not go well. And they ended up being down for I think about 3 hours. And so like half of the I think it was around half, or maybe more half, of the North American clusters were down for that time, and that just seems so. I think to it that seems like such an odd time to do
0: a maintenance is on a Thursday night. They they usually reserve those for weekends, and they give us notice.
1: Yeah, I know they do them often. I think at least weekly, like these little hot fix
0: releases. Maybe it was something that that was hot enough that they decided to do it earlier
1: in the week than over the weekend. That could be. Um, saw some funny quotes. Let's see. Yeah. Tweeters or Tweeps. What are people called who tweet? Are they Tweeps? Tweeps complained that their entire business had been left unable to function because they couldn't get to their CRM. Others demanded to know why Salesforce wasn't communicating more on Twitter. It's ironic given that Salesforce puffs on so much. I love Brits. (laughs) It's ironic given Salesforce puffs on so much about socially enabling its own customers' businesses. Its chief executive touts his services as something allowing stodgy old firms to talk and to talk to and engage with their customers through social media, allowing firms to mine users for new ideas. Embarrassingly, the crash comes ahead of the company's annual Dreamforce conference scheduled for next week in San Francisco. Let's see this morning. This morning's outage is Salesforce's second crash this year coming three months after a data corruption took down servers in Europe for nine hours. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, okay. My first thought when this was happening was, you know, cause people are freaking out and, you know, this happens when, you know, sometimes when Gmail's down for an hour or two. And my thought is, go drink some coffee, go have a beer. It was at night, at least in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I know some people's business runs on this, but if you look at the overall downtime, I mean, yeah, the downtime's not good, but people get a little bit apoplectic about it. And it's like, you know, calm down. <laughs> it'll it'll come back up. And they do a way better job than you could ever possibly do in your own data center. Um, but on the other hand, I, I love this point that they make about how Salesforce did a bad job of communicating on its social media. So, so this is another example of Salesforce being really bad at at dog fooding. They don't eat their own. I mean, they do, they do use a lot of their own tools, but they talk about being a customer company, which I don't think they are. And, you know, using social media and having outstanding support. And the, and it's funny because Salesforce has terrible support. Um, I don't think they're, I think they're a customer. I think they do a great job of creating this perception of being a customer, but I don't think they are. I've, I've dealt with way too many of their customers, big customers of theirs, who don't get treated right, don't get the, don't get honest answers. And this, I think, this is just another example of it. And I'm glad someone actually called them out on it in the media. This was, this is on the Register, by the way. Interesting.
0: I, I've always thought that every time I hear these, or every time I'm at Dreamforce and they're, they're pushing their new social technologies and their social um customer portals and all those kind of things i always think in the back of my head well why aren't you using them you, you you have all these great tools and you talk about being able to reach out and you have all these even for the dreamforce event they have people sitting there live in front of everybody answering tweets and responding and all that kind of stuff but when it comes to these outages and all those things everything goes quiet the trust takes forever to get uploaded or updated and even when it is updated it's some generic message that we see over and over. Oh, we found some performance degradation. We're working on it. That doesn't tell me crap. There's not yeah. even an ETA on it, which I don't know. When there are outages, it's frustrating because we don't know what's going on. We don't know how long it's going to last. We're all trying to still get back in. We're all hitting the refresh button as often as we can to, to see when it's going to come back on. I think it would be nice to have a little more communication, a little more ETA so that we can say, oh, it's going to be down for 30 minutes. I've got time to go run and get a coffee. Instead, we're sitting there clicking the button trying to figure out what we're going to do. Or, and and you mentioned it being at night, but there's a lot of call centers. There's a lot of people who are running Salesforce CRM for support, and they have 24-hour call centers, and they have people waiting on hold, and they can't get into the system, which means their their hold
1: times are going up. And that's a, that's a huge issue for them. Or well, they can't take orders on their website. And not to mention that for the EU, it was, let's see, that was, that was like around 10 at night, so I guess it was... That would have been like four in the morning there. Four to six, something like that. So you mm-hmm. know, so the probably most of their morning Salesforce was down. So that's it's kind of a bummer.
0: Well, I think the good news is it doesn't happen very often. When it does happen, it sucks and we all get really pissed off. But fortunately it's not a daily occurrence, it's not a weekly occurrence, it's not a monthly occurrence. Um it's a few times a year.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. You gotta give them credit for that. It's it's rare. Um I think their engineering is is really solid in that area. Um, you know, they haven't really had any. Here's the here's the big thing to, that we know of anyway. They have not had any data breaches.
0: No, and they, it, they, know, they seem to they,
1: none. They seem to be really none that proactive. Were Salesforce's fault, right? Yeah,
0: they seem to be really proactive in the, in that they've done a really good job at securing the platform. They, they've avoided having to send out that that awful notice
1: of Hey, someone got a hold of your data." change your password. Of course, you know, the NSA has got all the data. That, that's the one thing I wonder about companies that have chosen to transact all their business in the cloud is, I mean, if, if the NSA goes to these little, I mean, can go to anyway you know, from Google on down to these little mail service, like lava bit, and basically either force them to give up their SSL keys or, or hack and, and, you know, do like these man in the middle attacks, then I, I have, I would have no doubt. I mean, I would never assume that the NSA does not have, is not in Salesforce. In fact, I, I mean, I'd assume they are. Yeah, but uh, even they even feel if like you're... they need that data and they and they don't respect any boundaries.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a convenient way for them to kind of mass mine a lot of that data by going to these cloud providers. Obviously, if they wanted to, they could certainly come to your individual company, no matter big or small, and and, and force you to provide your data.
1: Yeah, well, it's well they don't have. That's what I'm saying. They don't have to, and it's not just mass mining. I mean, the reason they went to LavaBit was to get Ed Snowden's email, and and in an ongoing way, they wanted the guy shut the service down because they were demanding the SSL key so they could, in real time, Hmm. be intercepting emails from specific people. So I mean, it happens.
0: Well, which is fine if they work within the law and they get the warrant. The problem is that the NSA was working around that requirement.
1: Um,
0: I believe they're using some. Other law and it it really escapes me, but I think they're trying to release some legislation now in Congress to to try and patch that hole well
1: good luck i don't think I don't think the public has an appetite for the nSA having more power
0: no 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 the the appetite would be i mean the the legislation would be to require that the nSA get a warrant a a, a warrant for that information oh, oh you're yeah, yeah. Right.
1: okay you you're saying the opposite okay right. yeah no I agree I don't think most Americans are. You know, and this is a this is definitely a bipartisan thing. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're conservative or liberal or anywhere in between. Yeah, some people just people don't, don't have lie. the people right have, perspective
0: on it. I think they they think, oh well, I'm not doing anything criminal, so what if they're looking at my stuff? But you know, it, it's they they just have the wrong, I guess, perspective on it. I think from my point of view. Uh,
1: uh, so, well, John, I got a question. I got a question for you. Okay. Is this is incredible. Are you guys pumped up and ready to go? <laughs> no, are you really pumped up and ready to go?
0: I'm pumped up and ready Woo! to go.
1: Yeah, Woo! yeah. Let's do this. <laughs> Where's my million dollars? Uh, it, hey, it's it's almost time, man. It's <laughs> next week, right? It is. Um, so but I'm not going to be there to hack Friday. away. No. Although me I, I have to Sorry. admit,
0: there's there's tons of ideas rolling around my head. Going, I wonder if that's worth a million dollars. Wouldn't it be awesome to win that?
1: Well, you're gonna kick yourself in the butt when you see the app that wins and it's probably not, you know, if it's not near it's good to go something you could build. Right? I
0: have ideas of grandeur though. Any any application I, I dream up of building, it's this industry changing, monolithic thing that I have no idea how to build, but it's gonna change the world. I mean, that's 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 what an idea in my head looks like right now. They're not they're not what they should be. They're not simple intuitive, elegant ways of solving a problem. And that's what good apps are.
1: You've set your sights so high that you can't get started. Yes, exactly. Hmm. Bummer. We need need the idea, man. I know you and I could build something awesome. No,
0: it's not. The idea is not the problem. The problem is keeping them simple, elegant, and
1: intuitive. And executing. And executing on that, right. Ideas are worthless. Yep.
0: Oh, man, I, I... I can't believe, I can't tell you how many times people come up to me with an idea or know that I'm a developer and they have this idea for an app and they're like, oh, I've got this idea for an app. I just need someone to build it and we'll be rich. I mean, I don't know if you get that, but I've, I've gotten that from a number of people, people around me, my father included, who always has some idea of how we can work together and get rich. And I'm going, oh, it doesn't work that way. The idea is worth nothing. It's when you build it and execute it
1: and put it out there. That's when it starts to gain value. Well, so yeah, every, everyone thinks that their idea is worth a billion dollars and they're not. It's it's the execution. I
0: try not to be that way with my every, ideas. Everyone's got ideas. I, I try to kind of say, yeah, here's my idea for an app because I know it's not worth anything until someone builds it. If you take my idea and go out and build it, good job. You did something I couldn't do. Um, I'm not one of those people that tries to guard my ideas and go, oh, I got, a, I got this really great idea you know, just keep it between you and me. Cause it's, it's, it's an awesome idea. It's worth billions and this and that. And, and what, nothing comes of it. Cause it's just an idea. I just, you're sitting there talking to the guy going, I just need someone to build this and do this. And, and you're basically telling saying I have this idea. I just need you to, to code it, release it, develop it, support it. And I'm just going to sit back here and be the idea guy. Cause I like to create. Boy. Am I alone in that? Do you have no, any, no, any people around you with, with these big ideas that, that think that if you just build it, the money will come.
1: If I had a dollar for everyone that thought they had a million dollar idea, I'd be, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's an idea in that somewhere. So, this, so, and you know, we've talked about Dreamforce. Um, I, I wouldn't mind. Well, it's gotten so big now. I probably would not want to go. But in years past maybe five or six years ago it's something that I, I I might go to I mean I like to go to conferences that are more like the, the conferences I go to are, are developer conferences where it's um it's very casual it's it's just a bunch of nerds and developers right um so this is one thing about dreamforce and all these salesforce events that just i'm always i it's not that I'm not comfortable because i mean i've got I've got a couple of suits that actually fit and and I've got um you know, a lot of business casual clothing—that that's fine. But I'm just, you know, I usually work from home, so I just I rarely dress like that anymore. I do if I have to, if I've got a meeting or something. But like, I know I and mean, you've been to Dreamforce, but so there's this article. It's like what to wear to Dreamforce. I, I saw that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it, you know, this person says I noticed most most professionals dressed business casual. It's important to feel comfortable, but don't sacrifice elegance. And then, you know, just the thought of a hundred thousand. Sales and marketing people and CMOs and wannabe, you know, whatever, wearing their. And I even, it, the thing that really disturbs me is what all the pictures I see of the developers that are wearing like douchebag, wannabe salesperson looking clothes. It's like, what are you doing? You should be wearing <laughs> like shorts and flip flops in a t shirt. I, I don't know. It's, to me, it's just not my scene. It just, it doesn't. But Everyone's putting on this air of their, they're going to be like the next, you know, I don't know. I just, I just don't. It, it is. It's it's totally,
0: totally putting on airs. Now for me, every time I went, I went business casual. Sometimes I had a suit only because I felt obligated in certain situations. One, my company was sponsoring me and they wanted me, I'm representing them. So I had to kind of dress um, appropriately for that. And see
1: that, that, that just sucks. And this idea that you're representing your company. So you need to, you know, look like an executive or something. I mean, yeah. come
0: on. Well, and the last one I did, I was, I spoke at two sessions. So I kind of felt like I needed to look the part as well on that one, but I agree. There's, there's plenty of people but who I do know, show I see,
1: up. I disagree with that whole premises that the, the, the part has to have a blue blazer on. <laughs> that's bullshit.
0: Next time I go, I will, I will be extremely casual. Not, not flip-flops but I know casual, that's how dream, but
1: casual. I know that's how Dreamforce is, which is, you know, reason number seven hundred eighty-two. I, but it's I not. It's not. They
0: it. they have they have great areas to sit around and relax. They have beanbag chairs. They have all these really cool places to just kind of relax and be yourself. And the people who are wearing jeans and and their hipster clothes, they're taking advantage of that and they're relaxing. Those of us who yeah. are there from the corporate world and enterprise or consulting are all dressed up and and look like a bunch of douches trying to trying to sell you a new car or used car. I don't know. It just. I've I've gotten that feeling the last few times I went as it got bigger. Um and the more I go the the less formal I want to be and the more casual I want to be because a I'm having to run around the entire damn city to get to all these damn sessions. Um which means I would really rather have tennis shoes on than anything else. I, I don't care about nice casual walking shoes or anything like that. I want some damn running tennis shoes, cross trainers, whatever on my
1: feet. Yeah.
0: And no one cares. no one's looking at what you're wearing. You know what they're looking at your badge. they're looking at the color of your badge that says whether or not you're a customer, a partner, or whatever, so they can figure out if they, you're someone they want to talk to.
1: Uh, reason number seven hundred eighty three the, the, the first, first few time times I, I went, That's... I was a
0: consulting partner. That was what my badge says. The last two t- two times yeah, the last two times I went, I had a customer badge, and boy, was I popular. Not only was I, I was a customer badge, I was a customer badge for
1: a huge enterprise company. And again, this goes back to you're surrounded by a hundred thousand salespeople. Mm-hmm. I got who, lots of and, and yeah, and the other thing is, you know, it's everyone's there trying to make their career. I mean, so many people there. Whether it's we talked about this a little bit on the podcast, but the developers and admins that, I mean, they, they listen. They are, um, they're all in because their whole career. Trajectory is based on is based on Salesforce, and so they're they are there trying to uh, make the impressions and and do what do what they think is the thing to do, and obviously the thing to do at, Dr- at Dreamforce is dress like a douchey business dude. <laughs> huh. You know, with your crappy blue blazer that doesn't fit, with the plastic gold tacky buttons and the pants that are about an inch too short you know just wear clothes that fit you so where does that come from
0: though because the salesforce people they're wearing their salesforce t-shirts and their jeans and you know they're out there i know they're setting a good example that's the so so where's this requirement coming from that everyone needs to be dressed up in a suit and blazer or whatever i mean aside from benioff and his his attire for stage but even he's got a hook he's got his socks everyone's always looking at whatever socks he's wearing that year
1: john yeah it's because you're surrounded by a hundred thousand sales and marketing people <laughs> <laughs> I guess I mean I mean now
0: that I think about it, I really don't know where that comes from and I guess it is sales and marketing, but
1: I don't know. well, again, and it's the people that have latched their career onto salesforce and they 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 went from zero to sixty in their career on salesforce's coattails, so they're just trying to keep that going, man, playing the part. Well, I can't be mad at Salesforce anyway, for creating. I'm just creating I'm careers. just bitter. I'm I'm obviously just bitter because no one's ever paid me to go to Dreamforce <laughs> and I'm just a bitter old bitter old man. Pay yourself to
0: go. We'll go in jeans and flip-flops and we'll have a good time. We won't. You, that that I mean that's part of it. You know, when someone's sponsoring you, you feel obligated to go to ev- as many sessions as you can, to talk to as many people as you can, to be extremely productive. But the event itself has a lot of great places to relax, a lot of great places to to hang out and talk and meet people. And that gets lost in trying to go from session to session and, and, and just be on this complete education mode or this complete selling mode or this complete marketing mode, which I think does everyone a disservice at Dreamforce. They even have video games there. They have arcade games in the developer place for people to go and hang out and play games. They have beanbag yeah. chairs everywhere. Yep. And I think for some reason, the, the message of Dreamforce, whatever Salesforce is trying to, you know, whatever atmosphere they're trying to get is getting lost by, by suits basically.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, to be fair, it's, it's a diverse crowd. They've got different groups. They've got, they've got the sales and marketing types there. They've got the admins there. They've got the developers there. They've got um, prospects there and customers there. So, you know, I mean, I don't want to paint a broad rush and I'm just, I'm, I'm just giving them a hard time. I'm kidding kind of kind of but uh yeah i know there's a lot of good sessions there's there's probably a lot of sessions that i'd really like particularly the ones that um I, like i saw Stephen tam who's their ceo or not ceo cto i guess of salesforce um tweeted a couple of the like salesforce engineering sessions they're doing that talks about the engineering that salesforce uses to build salesforce mm-hmm. i mean that would be right up my alley i mean i would i'm sure i would get a lot out of that well i think the point i was trying to make is that When you go to Dreamforce,
0: you feel obligated, at least if you're being sponsored by your company or something, to go to all these sessions and to be able to report back to people who couldn't go about what it was like, what you learned in those sessions, you know, all those kind of things. And I think it misses the point of being around so many different and diverse people. You're so focused on getting from one session to the other and making it back to the other. And once you get to the session, you're basically sitting there in your own little
1: world waiting for the presentation to begin. I mean, the thing I like about conferences the most, at least the ones I go to, which are admittedly more programmer related, um, but are, my, my main goals are having fun, learning something and making connections. Yeah. Dreamforce um,
0: is fun. I think you can make connections, but I think a lot of people and myself included because of the way when I first started attending Dreamforce, the first few times, I was so focused on being that, that company representative that I forgot to have fun. I forgot to talk to people. I did my obligation of going to as many sessions and filling up my entire day as I could and running from one place to another, you know, it just wasn't a fun experience for me. I think if you be very selective about the sessions that you want to attend and attend them for a reason, have a backup plan in case you get there and that session sucks, you can walk out and, you know, get into the other one but i think leave some some breathing room leave some room for you to kind of go and hang out at, at and grab a beanbag chair or or go find a game or and you know from there you'll meet people and you'll talk to people and you'll make connections i think i think that's what these conferences are for bringing those people together and getting them to talk not not this mass training session or this mass you know marketing pitch i mean i i, I think bringing all these people together serves a bigger purpose than that
1: another salesforce tip brought to you by john de <laughs>
0: You went all radio announcer on me on that one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you got me started.
1: <laughs> I know.
0: All right. What else so, is we're going, on the man. subject of training. Um, Let's talk about certification. We've got a new logo.
1: New, oh yeah. New logos. Yeah. We got, got new it. logos. Everyone has to update their email signatures with their I stupid, don't do annoying that. images I don't do that. that cause every email in my inbox list to have the little paperclip. And so when I go to search for attachments in my email history, I can't find what I'm looking for because everyone has a stupid Salesforce certification image along with their stupid company logo in attached as an image in every email they send. Yeah. We need to stop that. Stop attaching images and emails for your signature line.
0: That just sucks. <laughs>
1: It's it, that should be, it doesn't impress an email me like
0: at one Oh one. It either doesn't come through or it shows up, like you said, in a, as an attachment.
1: It does nothing for me. I, I just, I don't like it. it. I don't. Yeah. And it's, you can't find, if you're going scanning through your email, looking for some, you know, Excel that someone sent you, are looking, you're scanning through, looking for emails with attachments. Yes. I do but it all, all the time. All these emails have attachments because everyone's, everyone's logo is attached and is an image. But anyway, yeah. So new. I, did you look at them? I, I think, I think I saw one. It I guess it looks updated. I don't really care. You know, whatever.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a blue circle with, with a cloud and then it's got, you know, the certification that's got the text below it. Um, at least for the developer. I need to try one.
1: to, I need to try to find my S force certification logo. That was what <laughs> it was called. Co- so I was in the pilot training, like the first one. Yeah. Um, we did it and I did it in, San, in Salesforce's office there at what are they, One Market or whatever their building is called? Um, and uh, yeah, it was like, a, it was a, uh, it was their pilot training and it was, I got S4 certified. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, remember they went to like level
0: one and level two? Do you remember those, the certification was, was so painful because every year they changed it up. Every year they nullified what you did before and created some new thing. Uh, it seems yeah, like that.
1: Yeah, they're like, remember that certification that you worked so hard for and paid money for and yeah. traveled to to take the test and got? yeah, that one's going away and we've got this new system. (laughs) (laughs) It really sucked. Yeah. Of course, at
0: the time I was a consultant for a partner. And so those were required, you know, to stay a partner, you had to get the sort of, well, it's still a requirement to be a partner, but during, while they were trying to figure out how they were going to do these certifications, they really made us pay for it. Um, Did you see that? I noticed on the certification, I didn't know they had this, but they have a Twitter account called Salesforce University. And I'm assuming that they're, they're again going to increase their certification program and pull it all under this kind of educational university thing. What do you think of that? So what are they doing? So on their certification, when you go to their new certification page, that kind of tells you about the new, um, how you can get certified for all these different things. Um, they have a little section where you can see tweets from, from this specific account called Salesforce university. And it's got a, you know, a branded logo with a big U and it's got a Salesforce ribbon across it kind of making it look, you know, like an educational institution. So I'm wondering if they're getting ready to kind of expand this and kickstart it a little bit more, um,
1: Probably so, I mean, it's like every time they grow a new order of magnitude, you, I mean, and I don't blame them I mean, you kind of have to reboot everything, yeah. your certification programs, your partner programs, it, you know, it happens. And, you know, I know they have to charge money for these and some of them aren't cheap, especially, you know, on the really high end, like that technical architect, is yeah. that what it's called? It's like five or six grand. I mean, I don't, you know, the reality is they are they're really not, I'm sure they're not making money off of that. It's, they're just kind of probably covering their costs, but. You know, it's just, I don't know. It's part of the professional consulting certification thing. Just, it's just the culture. Right. Which uh, naturally I don't like because I'm, you know, me, I'm the, uh, the cantankerous old counterculture (laughs) guy who has to complain about it all. But you know, I begrudgingly participate. I just
0: hope whatever they do, it's, it's fair and backwards compatible to those of us who have kind of been doing this for
1: a while and trying to maintain our certifications. (laughs) Hey, do you ever run across Sugar CRM or do you ever work with it? Or I never worked with it. I
0: mean, I've seen it everywhere. Um, and especially if you go to Dreamforce.
1: Oh, do they do like a, do they yeah. try to
0: crash the party? They they crash <laughs> the party along with, you know, a few others. That That's always an, makes people look so lame. Doesn't it? There was a I big think. article about, um, I think it was IBM it was that did it for. for oh, you're right. It's for, IBM. Yeah. Against uh,
1: <laughs> Amazon. <laughs> it's it's like it's like the it's like trolling right they're just kind of just trolling yeah. a conference i don't know yeah i think it's lame yeah so anyway i saw that i uh, just this is just a little thing sugar is sugar CRM is hoping to gain inroads against its much larger rival salesforce.com with a revamped user interface that says places emphasis on the needs of individual individual users not business managers seeking a wide view of sales activity in their company which actually now i haven't seen this So they call it their user first design approach, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is interesting because a lot of times when you roll out Salesforce, everyone who's going to be a user, not everyone, but I mean, a lot of the people, I think they feel like, oh gosh, this is another tool that they're going to use to beat me with and and I'm going to be under the microscope. They're going to watch how I use this and all the data that I put into it. That's kind of an interesting spin on it. The problem with that approach is that individual users don't make the purchasing decisions on the CRM system. <laughs> no, they don't.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no one's come come to us and said, "Oh, we want to implement this system because our users want it." No, it's it's they they have some real business metrics and, and need that that they need to get out of it, and the users are the ones that supply that data. But um, it, it certainly helps adoption to to kind of be focused on how your users are going to use it. There's obviously. A lot of tips and tricks that that I give to anyone who's implementing in terms of user interface, you know, when to go custom, when to not, how to lay things out um, on your pages and those kind of things to kind of help that along. So I think I think it's a good selling point. I mean, obviously, if you're going to spend a ton of money on a system, you want to make sure people are using it and you the best way to make sure they're using it is to let is for them to enjoy using it to them for them to not hate it.
1: Yeah. And. You know, I, I think but salesforce i, I think an okay job of i that. think
0: salesforce is due for a new refresh in fact i i've been wanting to put my little investigative journalism hat on and start doing some exploring because i i see some cues in some of the latest releases in terms of how they design things and i've seen some cues in some of the what i feel are future direction and how where they might go with some of the interfaces and i'd really like to explore that more and, and see if i can uncover what's going on there but i think they're they're kind of overdue and i think Soon, if not this Dreamforce or next one,
1: we may see a new interface. yeah, you're probably more in tune with that than I am, but I have noticed little like responsive design things mm-hmm. uh, slip in.
0: Well, I think the other thing is is touch really hasn't taken off like like you would think, and I think that's because no one wants to use a s- completely separate system. They want to use what they have. they want to use that one system, and I think it it's a disservice to kind of split the application in between touch and the, the actual application.
1: Yeah, it's really like a silo, isn't it? Yeah,
0: it is. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think I think uh, I think they'll get creative and they'll come up with a way to bridge the two. Um and just so, make I mean, it work. I, I keep
1: hearing these I keep hearing these rumors though that touch is going away and it's going to be um very chatter driven. And I I still don't understand how that would work at all, but I I still keep hearing this that chatter is going to be that we're going to hear more about that at Dreamforce next week that chatters become it will become like the primary interface in a Salesforce. Um, the only way I can see that working is if you really water down Chatter, if you're basically just renames, renaming Salesforce's entire interface, you just we're going to rename that whole thing to Chatter and just make everything very feed and chat driven, which is fine, but that's not really Chatter. That's just making Chatter kind of pervasive throughout everything, which is different than saying Chatter will be the interface because Chatter, as we know it right now, I mean, it can't be the interface to all these other parts in Salesforce because they have their own they have their own specific interface for that area by design by by necessity so if they do if they do end up saying hey we're you know the new interface of salesforce is is, is chatter then it to me that's really if they if they announce something like that my prediction is that that would be more of a branding thing and and it might have it might come with a whole new look and feel but that could be that could tie into what you're just talking about maybe that maybe that would be part of a complete reboot of the look and feel because don't you think the whole like tabbed thing isn't that kind of tired in mid 2000ish it is i mean
0: it serves a certain function in terms of accessing various modules but i think for for what from what i hearing from from all the different interviews with Benioff in terms of the chatter and all the all the different blogs and things like that is that i don't think salesforce is too far away from it i mean it's a very kind of single record driven application you're not going in doing mass edits unless you modify it to support it so it's not a big leap for salesforce to with some of the things they've done recently, like allowing you to create these small snippets of forms and put them, embed them into Chatter. So you basically have a Chatter feed and you can flip over to this, you know, quick task create or something along those lines. I don't see it being too far of a leap to having a completely, your main page on Salesforce is just this
1: timeline of records. And as you're... No, I agree, but I think that's just rebooting the entire interface, which I I agree with you. So it's ripe, they're ripe for that. But calling that Chatter is... Okay, I guess you can call that chatter. I mean, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I mean, basically, you're just calling the new interface to Salesforce Chatter. Yeah, but we've, fine, we've said whatever, before it's all you, marketing.
0: We don't know what to call. It. We don't know what Chatter is anymore. They're 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 evolving it to a point where it's not what we originally thought it was, which was a Twitter-like feed or a Facebook-like feed. They're making it more than just a feed of information. It's it's interactive. It's it's you're inputting data and getting data out, and it's just this very interactive stream of data. Yeah. So I don't think they're too far off from it. I, I think the system as it is and the model will support it pretty easily to, to that kind of transition to where you're basically living in a timeline and maybe you have a few quick create buttons to create records from scratch, but most of it will probably be, you know, Hey, something's going on with this account and, and I'm just going to create a task for this or that. I think we'll still probably have some element of tabs or some element of having to ability to kind of get into some of these other modules in the system. But I think for CRM, I, I don't see it too far off from being a
1: completely fit feed driven interface. Well, from a technical perspective, I sure hope they get rid of the table hell that is their markup.
0: Yeah. Well, obviously if they move to that feed, it will be cause it'll be, more form driven than anything. You still have to build a drill into a record to see additional details and all the related information. I want to say I'm seeing cues in some of their newer stuff in terms of the tables that that will be better. And and it's a big part of it's getting away from table layout, which they still rely heavily on.
1: Well, I think that's because they have to support some pretty old browsers.
0: Yeah, but are they are they IE seven and up? Yeah, but I think they're they're getting to a point where they're going to stop doing that.
1: I mean, if they can, but I mean, Salesforce is, they're like, they're the, to the point of like enterprise legacy now. I mean, they're, they got to support these big companies that are running really old browsers.
0: Yeah. But these, these big companies are also having to deal with other newer applications that are doing some really nice things that they would like to use and that require the latest version of, of a browser.
1: Yeah. No, you're, I mean, that is changing. And And I think Microsoft is helping to push that, but there's still a lot of companies that are still on XP.
0: Yeah, and it's there's a still a lot of problem. companies that lock down. And you can't upgrade to the latest version without IT and all that kind of stuff. But I think that's changing. I mean, more and more people are using other browsers like Chrome and Firefox, and those are auto updating. Um, so they have a way to use the latest and greatest. And even Salesforce still has features that they release that that say if you're going to use Chatter, you have to be on the latest browser. You know, you can't. It's not going to support you know IE six or whatever. Um, so they they are kind of pushing in that direction of getting people off these older browsers and trying to get them to use these, these other browsers. And the best thing about it is it doesn't cost a company anything, or at least it shouldn't. I mean, Chrome is free. Firefox is free. Um, and of course IE comes with windows. It's
1: not about the cost. It's not about the cost of the browser per se. It's, it's, it's two things. It's, it's that they have, well, one is that they're on XP and that is a cost thing. Just, that migration is hugely expensive if they're stuck on an old OS but XP doesn't prevent them from they, using chrome on, does it hang on hang on All right. hang on the other thing is the other thing is that they've got these um, internal applications that, you know, in-house applications that require uh, that they require the bugs that are in like IE6 and IE7 in order to even work right
0: <laughs> maybe for internal stuff but if, if they if they're trying to
1: reach customers with that kind of technology they're losing out on a lot of customers well, No, this is just internal stuff. I mean, they're not this is not anything they're exposing to the world. It's just internal yeah. like and for those, corporate applications. It's the expense logging application and the vacation request application and all that stuff. And I don't really have a lot of sympathy. Really ver- I don't have the a lot. really old version of SAP or
0: something. I don't have a lot of sympathy for those. I I think they need to upgrade. They need to Well, I don't either. I mean, I just, you know, you and I both despise that kind of crap, but and there's really very no reason that they should be doing doing that anymore in this day and age and especially if we're talking in the world of Salesforce they can put that stuff in Salesforce with a with a bunch of point and clicks so i mean in the world of Salesforce customers who are using Salesforce they have a way out of those things they have a way out of their their legacy ActiveX components you know they have a way to put that somewhere that's more accessible and gives them a way to kind of keep the systems updated yeah and and, and that we've got Amazon now they can just stick everyone on Amazon and everyone stream their systems.
1: There you go. I think, I mean, again, companies are already doing that. You know, like I said, Citrix and Dell and some of these other providers, they already have that type of service that people are using. So I think Amazon's just, they're jumping into that business and probably going to disrupt it. I I think it's a good option for, you know, big companies. Um, All right, we're running long, but I I just wanted to at least mention um, Pivotal had their, they had like a big um, announcement this week. That um, it's basically around what they're calling Pivotal One, which is their implementation of Cloud Foundry. Hmm. Um, I still haven't done much of Cloud Foundry. I want to check it out, but so Pivotal it's it's their um, I guess it's like their distribution of Cloud. So Cloud Foundry is a it's an open source or like free, almost like a true platform as a service. So it's it's the it's the an actual platform as a service. So you can build your application targeted towards. Cloud Foundry, and anywhere where a Cloud Foundry will run, whether it's like you know Amazon or OpenStack or whatever, um, you can your app will run on it's. It's like a, a guaranteed set of services, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know why it took them so long, but yeah, Pivotal they they've now released their you know commercial distribution of that. So if you want to build for Cloud Foundry and you want corporate support and all that, you can you can do you can buy Pivotal one. Um, so I, I um, they had a webinar this week. It it looked like it was completely pre-produced, um, but it's pretty interesting. So it's got you know everything from compute to database to um, even like Hadoop for big data stuff. <clears throat> so it's just all these all these services, and so you can build you know all kinds of advanced applications on that, and yeah, it's pretty cool. So I at least wanted to mention it because I think it was a fairly big thing in terms of the cloud world, cloud computing. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that. I'll have to check that out. It sounds really interesting. They call it their, or people are calling it like, it's like a Google in a box, which right. doesn't mean search engine. It means like, it means, I think it's actually more of a, more of a reference to, like when you build, if you work at Google and you're going to build an application, mm-hmm. Google has all these services, whether it's like, you know, I don't think they use whatever replaced big table, but just all these services that you build your app on that it uses that are designed for really high scale. Right. And that's kind of what that's kind of what Pivotal or that's kind of what Cloud Foundry is. It's like this guaranteed set of services. You can build an app and anywhere, anything that is running Cloud Foundry, you can deploy your app to that. So it's portable. Right. But anyway, yeah, so I'm going to look into it more, but awesome. Um, Yeah, we're running long, so let's wrap it up. All right. What are you drinking? Uh, I went to my old favorite, little Jack and Coke. Jack and Coke. I've got a Negroni, which is, I guess it's Italian, but it's, um, for people who don't know, it's, it's kind of equal parts of gin, sweet vermouth and Campari and Campari for people don't know that, what that is, is like a, it's an Italian liqueur. Uh I think it's orange based, but it's really, really bitter. So it's like the, so you have this really bitter Campari, but it's somewhat balanced by that sweet vermouth, but it's definitely still a bitter drink. Um, but it's pretty darn tasty. And I, I get like a, I'll like zest an orange, get like a big piece of zest and I'll like express it all into the glass before I start building the drink. Right. So you just kind of have this orange flavor throughout as well. It's tasty. No, I normally drink these like before dinner, but I just, I, I was in the mood for it. So, cause it's late. We record these at night.
0: Yeah. It's, it's been a long week and I actually hadn't had my old standby, my Jack and Coke. So I figured I'd uh, pour one up and enjoy it. Sometimes I think I get too complicated with my drinking
1: choices, so it's always nice to go back to the simple stuff. Yep, no, I agree. And with that, I think we
0: have a show, don't we? I think so. And to that, I say good day, sir.
1: Good day, sir!